Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing. Uh, the briefings are produced by Public Health Law Watch, which is a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. I want to thank our co-sponsors, uh, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. So uh, we're here, as always, to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic, and hopefully to answer some or maybe a lot of your questions about uh, some of the really important pressing issues we're dealing with right now. Uh, for more information on the COVID legal response, I would encourage you all to check out our report, which is called Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19. It's available at wwwcovid 19 policyplaybook.org. Uh, in the report, we have uh, over 35, 36 chapters from 50 national experts who assess the U.S. policy response and provide recommendations on how federal, state, and local leaders can better respond to COVID-19 uh, and also respond to future pandemics. The report came out last summer, and uh, I'm very happy to report that we are in the process of doing the, the second edition of the report right now, and that should be out um, very soon in the next couple of months. I am... The host today, Lance Gable. I'm an associate professor at Wayne State University Law School here in Detroit. Uh, joining me today, and I'm very excited about this, uh, are Professor Rukaya Yerby, who's professor of law at St. Louis University School of Law and the co-founder and executive director of the Institute for Health, Justice, and Equity. And also Professor Tara Sklar, who is a professor of health law at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law and director of their health law and policy program. Um, if you're watching today, uh, please use the hashtag uh, hashtag COVID law briefing for any questions or comments in response to the briefing. So uh, today our topic, is, we're going to be focusing on one of the most urgent issues right now, which is uh, vaccine distribution and, and particularly uh, focusing on how we can distribute vaccine in an equitable way. Uh, the, the most recent briefing that was uh, posted online last week had some of our colleagues talking about a few aspects of uh, the vaccine distribution process, including some of the legalities of uh, mandates and things like that. But but today we're really going to to drill down into some issues related to the allocation process, how the how the distribution process is happening, and some of the challenges to achieving an equitable approach to vaccine distribution. And um, obviously, we've also recently, uh, and fortunately, I think, had a, a change in federal administration. So with the Biden administration starting to change tactics and roll out their plans and executive orders on, on COVID response in, in many different areas, uh, it's an exciting time to be talking about and thinking about how we can move forward in, a, in a, an effective way, in a way that is equitable uh, to get vaccine to our population. And so I wanted to start with a question for Rukaya. The Trump administration was really not willing or able to orchestrate a national vaccine distribution program or approach. And um, as a result, most of the responsibility, at least up until now, has been left to state and local governments and others outside the government to try to achieve that distribution um, and, and to do it effectively. So what states and or individuals are doing a good job right now or so far in their allocation of vaccines? And what are those states and other entities doing? Uh, so I just want to say thank you for including me. Um, I'm excited to talk about this, particularly as Executive Director of Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. Uh, states are doing, states that are 
doing well are doing three things. One, they're working with community partners. Two, they are taking targeted approaches for those most impacted who cannot uh, leave their essential jobs to get vaccinated. And three, they're continuing to meet and talk to people about the vaccine. And so we see examples of this throughout the country. The Black Doctors Consortium began vaccinating people in North Philadelphia, including many Black city residents over the weekend of January the 15th. And they found concerns about taking the vaccines, but as they continued to do it, more and more people got shots. We see Michigan, where you're located, doing a great job. Um, They have instituted state town hall meetings to make um, people better informed about the COVID-19 vaccinations and about the process. We see a Michigan doctor and VP of Medical Affairs from Mid-Michigan Health actually taking his own time and driving out the vaccine to a rural hospital so they'll uh, have access to it. And then we see Riverside County's Public Health Department teamed up with nonprofits and vaccinated over 300 workers from ranches, uh, from two ranches in California. So really key is working with community partners, targeted approach, and making sure to continue to communicate with the public about their concerns and about the vaccine. So so you mentioned community response. Uh, Is is this a common strategy that, uh, I mean, beyond the examples that you gave, is this something that states and and local governments uh, are implementing partnerships with the community? And and, and how, how has that been working? out um, in the places that have tried that? Um, So a lot of this uh, work um, is based off of a paper actually by uh, Harold Schmidt at University of Penn entitled Equitable Vaccine Allocation of COVID-19 Vaccines, Analysis of the Initial Allocation Plans of CDC's Jurisdictions and Implications for Disparate Impact Monitoring. Uh, So what they did is that they looked at the the initial plans Uh, to work with communities and found that Michigan um, was initially going to give vaccines to uh, the big health partners and hospitals and then um, prioritize community providers uh, that could reach out to vulnerable groups. Um, And they have been doing that in addition to now the town hall meetings. We also see this in Vermont um, and their immunization program. They're collaborating with the Health Operations Center's Health Equity and Community Engagement Team to ensure access for people who are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and are vulnerable, including Black and Indigenous people and people of color. Um, And then we can also see a couple of other states that initially mentioned that they would be working with tribal governments, South Dakota, North Dakota, to ensure that they had access to the vaccines. And so a lot of this work was in the initial plans and now we're seeing it actually in practice. Okay, yeah, that that, that that's really great, and and I, I I wanted to follow up on one point that you just made. So you mentioned that uh, there are some targeted outreach efforts uh, for Black and Indigenous people and and other people of color and other communities that are that have been affected uh, more significantly by by COVID nineteen, and, and and of course we've seen racial inequities being pervasive throughout the COVID nineteen response from the start. And I, I wanted to ask uh, what has caused uh, this to occur? And also, is the vaccine rollout following the same pattern? And if so, what what is driving um, any kind of vaccine inequities in, um, in or inequities in the allocation of vaccines? So we see the inequities among racial and ethnic groups and among the poor.
poor uh, for many reasons. I'm going to focus on one, uh, that they tend to be essential workers. So it's linked to employment conditions and workplace spread. Um, and we can see this being replicated actually in the vaccine allocation. And so many of these workers are left out. They don't have access to PPEs, personal protective equipment, or paid sick leave that allows them to stay at home even when they are sick. And so they continue to go to work, continue to be infected, and some states are not protecting them. And we can see the same problem in the vaccines where the Nebraska governor uh, mentioned that he was not going to vaccinate uh, immigrants, uh, meat and poultry processing workers, uh, but the, the virus doesn't care about your vaccine, uh, about your immigration status. And it's important that these workers are providing a service to us, so therefore they deserve the vaccine. And the same is happening in Florida, where there are questions about whether uh, immigrants, um, these essential workers, will be able to gain access to the vaccine. And so that's replicated. I will also say it's from the company standpoint. And so you see meat and poultry processing companies rushing to get their workers vaccinated, but not also then uh, implementing safety procedures that will protect them against workplace spread. And so many of these workers are now, particularly in the meat and poultry processing um, industry, not wanting to get the vaccine because they're not seeing the same support and valuing of their life. Uh, I, I want to move over, Tara, and ask a question um, about a different type of, of potentially vulnerable population. So uh, one thing that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic is that well, one of the hardest hit settings where, where people have had you know, high rates of infection and, and, and uh, we, we've seen a lot of, of um, both infections and deaths coming out of long-term care facilities and, and residents of those facilities and, and employees of those facilities as well. And so um, as we start to uh, talk about vaccine allocation and distribution, how are long-term care facilities faring on, on that in that process so far? And also how are differences in the way that long-term care is structured and delivered having an impact on vaccine rollout? Uh, great. Yes, I will begin to tackle that. And it's also um, such a pleasure to be here and talk about these issues in many ways, especially regarding long-term care staff. It um, echoes a lot of what Rakaya is saying in terms of what she's saying um, in terms of uh, vaccine hesitancy and, and uptake there. So, but I'll, I'll focus specifically on what we're seeing in long-term care because it is a regular um, headline uh, throughout the country in terms of how rollouts being handled, the number of um, cases and deaths in those facilities. And I think one thing to just keep in mind, if I could just quickly describe what long-term care is, it involves a high level of physical contact. And so that's why regardless of um, whether you're in a nursing home or warm assisted living or home health care, I'll get into the different structures. Um, it's been very difficult to control the spread between, I want to emphasize staff and residents because of that close contact with bathing and dressing and being really physical. So um, with that in mind, uh, what keeps sort of coming in the headlines is nursing homes, nursing homes. But nursing homes are about a third of the long-term care facilities. The majority are actually assisted living centers. And then on top of that, we have sort of home and community-based care and home health care and adult day service arrangements. So that the term long-term care, unfortunately, is not really being as nuanced or described as well as it could be in some of these headlines, because there's been a big dramatic difference in how the rollout's been impacting that. So if you're in a nursing home or a nursing facility, which is about a third of where long 
long-term care residents are, um, that comprises about uh, 16,000 nursing homes in the country. But if you're in assisted living, that's nearly 30,000 centers or facilities in the country. So it's um, nearly double the amount of actual facilities and they operate very differently. So I would say arguably the rollout is going somewhat well, or at least better in the, in the traditional nursing homes or um, skilled nursing facilities because um, it's more of a medical facility. There's more nurses on staff. They're more used to dealing with these larger chain operations like CVS and Walgreens. Um, and that's really been the focus point because that's where, that's where people are generally less healthy. On average, someone's only in a nursing home for six months before they pass. Um, so you're dealing with just such an extremely vulnerable population that if they do get COVID, that's why we're seeing that death rate. And there's been this really fantastic map that Kaiser Family Foundation put out showing the differences in states among the death rates with those in nursing homes, which I encourage folks to check out if they want to see it, because in some states, oh, nearly 75% of the COVID deaths are in this vulnerable population. So we're seeing a lot of the issues and where I think a number of Rakaya's suggestions could come out um, and be very helpful is in the assisted living centers and home and community-based care, where CVS and Walgreens really aren't getting there nearly as efficiently as they could be. And part of it's because they can't quite be as nimble. They really need that community support, especially in more rural areas. So I think that hopefully that's starting to change. And the biggest example of that is in West Virginia, where if you compare the two models, so for, um, the majority of the country went under Operation Work Speed, where CVS and Walgreens got 99% of the long-term care facilities for the vaccine rollout. West Virginia was the only state that didn't opt to do that. They wanted to work with their local pharmacies. And there we're seeing like nearly every resident there is now getting their um, up to their getting their second shot is, is much more on plan, on, on schedule. But what's also happening in West Virginia and we're also seeing across the country is only 50% of the staff is choosing to get the vaccine. So that that gets into some of these other issues that we're tying into of that feeling of um, long-term care in general isn't just about the residents, it's also about the staff. And, and to be honest, that's where a number of the infections are coming from. It's coming from the staff into those facilities. So I just wanted to emphasize that there's there's different types of long-term care being delivered between nursing homes and assisted living centers, and that calls for a different strategy approach um, going forward. So, so I wanted to ask a follow-up about that, which is um, you mentioned the uh, vaccine hesitancy among staff at, at some of these long-term care facilities. And we, of course, we've heard reports of that and seen data about that in a lot of different kinds of settings. In addition, to just long-term care, but what are some approaches we could take to uh, respond to that vaccine hesitancy and maybe to encourage more staff to be willing to get the vaccine? I think that's a great question. And um, and, it, and it does get to some of these types of like, what are where, what are states doing well, right? To help to help address the um, pandemic and the rollout. And it's um, many of the points that Rakaya brought up with having these town hall sessions, having opportunities to ask questions, to raise concerns, especially among trusted professionals in the field. Um, there was a lot of mistrust that began with the start of the pandemic where staff felt they weren't getting enough PPE. They weren't getting paid time off. They were very fearful of losing their jobs. It, it created an environment where now the, now like and now there's this concern they might be mandated to get a vaccine as opposed to really just trying to address the concerns, um, educating you know where there could be some misinformation, um, and then really addressing the lack of benefits, allowing for paid time off, 
allowing someone to recover after they get the vaccine. Um, and, and the other thing that's unique about long-term care, I would say, is it's a 24-7 operation. And so sometimes these clinics come in from Walgreens or CVS, they're going to come in between nine to five. What about the night shift? <laughs> so there needs to be alternative options there where address that it's understood. This is not a surprise. <laughs> it's a 24-7 facility. Where can staff go that works on the night shift to get their first and second shot? How are the clinics being planned? And um, and I and I think the other part for why it seems to be going better in nursing homes than in assisted living centers, there's, there's this big coordination reliance, right, between this massive chain and then this individual facility. But the majority of assisted living centers are also owned by massive chains. And so I think going forward, when we're going to need to look at how to kind of manage more mass inoculations, like how, for, for better or worse, that's the nature of how we're delivering long-term care in this country is it is this very for-profit private chain-based operation. Maybe this is one of those unique times where we could work with that central operation base uniting with the central operation base of CVS and Walgreens and not dependent on like a, an aid trying to manage a whole bunch of things in addition to coordinating the pharmacy coming into their facility. So I think that's one thing we could work on going going forward is just acknowledging that that's happening um, and and how and how to address that. So uh, so it's just it's just the combination of the education and the benefits, I think, could go a long way in increasing the trust between staff and administration and uptake of the vaccine. Okay, so I, I wanted to come back to Rakaya and ask a similar question about vaccine hesitancy, just more broadly. I, I know there, there are a lot of concerns um, that vaccine hesitancy might be higher in uh, Black and Indigenous communities uh, based on some, uh, you know, understandable historical skepticism in how the medical establishment uh, has treated those communities. And I'm wondering um, uh, what your assessment is of vaccine hesitancy in those communities and also more broadly, are there other strategies we can be taking to ensure that um, that people are, are willing to uh, line up and get this vaccine? Uh, yes, thank you for that. Uh, I actually wrote uh, a short piece about this along with um, people at the appeal uh, about the need for us to really begin to work with community. Um, it's part of the community engagement strategy, which is to not only uh, partner with communities to talk about this, to get uh, the vaccines out, but also to empower them to decide the ways that their communities want to be involved in the vaccine rollout. Um, I think it's so critical um, that the government not just think about it in terms of Tuskegee, but uh, as Tara mentioned, that it has really been the overall COVID-19 uh, pandemic response that has led people not to necessarily trust the government in the ways that it has changed sort of their recommendations, but also in their failure to protect uh, people of color, indigenous people, and then to even go further to blame them for the health inequities that are actually happening. Um, 
Um, so one of the ways that uh, I talk about this, along with my co-author, Professor Simon Moapatra, in our uh, upcoming article, Systemic Racism, the Government's Pandemic Response and Racial Inequities in COVID-19, that will be in Emory uh, Law Journal, is to talk about that the government needs to implement thoughtful, equity-focused public health measures, like protecting essential workers, uh, releasing incarcerated people, suspending rent payments, uh, but providing additional protection. So paid sick leave, um, hazard pay, uh, time off to deal with the vaccine, as Tara mentioned, uh, but actually providing some economic support to address the problems that people are facing, not just with uh, getting sick, but also the loss of economic stability. Uh, no, thank you. Th those are great points. And you know, thanks to both of you for really um, illuminating some important issues here. I, I guess my last question uh, you know, we're now seeing the Biden administration take over at the federal level and um, issuing uh, lots of executive orders and um, also uh, coming out with a fairly robust um, COVID response plan. And obviously, vaccine distribution allocation is only one one small component of that plan. But I, I, what I wanted to ask each of you, I'll start with Tara. Um, do you see things in those early actions from the Biden administration that would affect and influence how our vaccine rollout is going and what do you predict will happen now that we have a, a new administration in charge at the federal level? No, I think that's a great question and uh, one that lots of people are wondering about. And I, I think one of the biggest issues we're hitting right now is the vaccine shortage, right? So as, as, as Biden's enacted the Defense Production Act to really develop materials to try to address those potential bottlenecks, there's only as much as they can do, as quickly as they can do, it seems to be what they're trying to administer in, in a coordinated way, um, leveraging the weight of the federal government to then support the states so we can get away from this states competing against each other and, and really just addressing as a nation how to become inoculated. I think that's important, along with the mass mandate. I mean, that is narrowed to the federal government well, and interstate issues. But I think just that, that acknowledgement of, yes, if we wear masks, that can make a difference from a, from a federal government perspective, that visual will, I think, be very helpful in curbing um, some of the spread until we can become all inoculated. And I just think the general, the general support from the federal government to support states and local government in this effort was something to, to actively support them, not leave it to them to figure it out on their own, will be very helpful going forward with trying to also more equitably um, spread the vaccine as well in a coordinated way. So I think that's just something that, you know, they're trying to ask for more data, really trying to narrow in on more geographic, vulnerable zip codes, things like that, that just hadn't been done up to this point with the federal government, I think could be really helpful um, and, and important for, for, this, for this group. I'll just add two quick points. They established the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, which is so key at the national level, and they're expanding the clinical and public health workforce to include community-based workers. So many of the people who are in these hard-hit communities actually playing a large role in uh, the rollout of the vac vaccination and getting people to actually get it. Thank you so much to both of you for spending some time with us today and for sharing all of your knowledge and insights on these issues. Obviously, we have uh, an important uh, time ahead of us in the next couple of months to try to bring things under control and, and hopefully our, our leaders will, will take the right steps to ensure that we're not only having an effective process for distributing and allocating vaccine, but also an equitable one. And so I want to thank again, uh, Tara Sklar from the University of Arizona School of Law. Uh, also, uh, 
uh, Rukaya Yerby from the Institute for Healing, Justice, and Equity and St. Louis University School of Law. Uh, thank you both for your time today. And I, I should mention before we end for today, uh, we're going to be broadcasting these COVID law briefings every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. They'll be released on Twitter. You can go to at public PH Law Watch, uh, Public Health Law Watch, or search for hashtag COVID law briefing. Uh, recordings of these briefings will be available on the Public Health Law Watch website, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast, uh, which is available at www.twill.com. And also, uh, I want to mention that the COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kalik, Summer Brown, and Liz Voiles. Thank you all for joining us today. Please be safe, wash your hands, stay distant, and also when you have your chance, get your vaccine. Thank you very much.